Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Welcome to Censored. I'm Aoife Vrithnach, and I've been searching my shelves for dirty books. This time, I've chosen one from my own collection. A second-hand copy of Stambul Train has been on my shelf for years in the to-be-read pile. Its author, Graham Greene, is one of literature's big names. He was widely believed to be a Catholic novelist, but being famously Catholic was no protection against Irish censors, who were also considered famously Catholic. I know, it's a bit odd. This got a bit embarrassing when, in 1951, his novel The End of the Affair was blacklisted in Ireland. That same novel got an award from American Catholics for being the most distinguished Catholic novel of the year. Obscene to one lot of Catholics, but brilliant to others. How confusing. This was a little bit awkward for pro-censorship Irish Catholics, but that didn't stop them banning things because they had more than enough brass neck to survive the shame. While I was tempted to read The End of the Affair, when I found I had a copy of Stambul Train on the bookshelves, I just had to do it. This is Green's second novel, and it was banned in 1938, six years after it had been published. Late bans weren't unusual, but the good news is that it was probably too late in this case, because the novel was well-known and widely read. It had been distributed by the Book Society, which was a kind of a Book of the Month club based in London. Some Irish people definitely subscribed to this, so they received Stambul Train in the post in 1932. Also, anything recommended by this society sold quite well because libraries kept an eye on the list and bought stock according to the recommendations. So I suspect a lot of Irish readers had already read it by the time it was banned. Of course, after the prohibition order, bookshops and libraries had to take it off the shelves, so new readers couldn't get hold of it. A quick plot summary then before we start. The setting is a train, the Orient Express or Istanbul Express. Istanbul is actually the German language iteration of Istanbul. For me, the words Orient Express conjure up extraordinary glamour. I envisage a sleeper train with fancy restaurants, people wearing black tie for dinner, very posh food, the works. 
But the train in Green's novel is a little bit more democratic. There are first and second class passengers with very different standards of comfort. In first class is Mr. Carlton Myatt, a Jewish businessman based in London who imports dried fruit. Then there's a mysterious Mr. Opie, an English schoolteacher with a secret identity. A journalist, Mabel Warren, recognises him as a political dissident and is chasing him for a story. Her girlfriend, Jane Pardot, is on the train and she's desperate to get away from Mabel. But the central woman character is Coral Muscat, an undernourished, underdressed English dancer travelling to Istanbul to appear in a show. The novel tells how their lives weave in and out of each other as the train rattles its way across Europe. It's absolutely crammed with plot. I won't even be able to get to most of the narrative threads. Joining me to get nerdy about trains is Juliette Breton, who's doing a PhD at the University of Cambridge on Poland and Central Europe in modernism. Hi, Juliette. Thank you for joining me to discuss Stambul Train. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to to discuss this. It's an amazing novel. Yes, it is. I was very impressed. It really rollicks along. I enjoyed it greatly. But I suppose in the spirit of the novel, we really should choose a drink to go with it because there is a lot of eating and drinking and it's very significant. What I would go for is actually a Guinness because there's this very hilarious and ridiculous vignette where English people in the dining car are complaining about the local beer, which they find too gassy. And they're they're like, why isn't there any Guinness? I mean, why can't there be Guinness on this train? And I just thought it was so funny. It's so redolent of so much travel. What would you choose, do you think? Oh, gosh, this is a, an impossible question. I think, so my, my new thing is um, I found some vodka when I was abroad in Poland that is coffee and chili flavoured. Um, and it's disgusting, but I feel like it's the kind of weird, quirky drink that would work really well on a train hurtling through Europe. So, And also, you know, you've got your coffee, you can be awake, but also your chili for a bit of fun. So I would I would go with a shot of, of that wonderful vodka. <laughs> and it sounds like the sort of thing you would see on a train menu when you were traveling and go, that sounds like a great idea. Exactly. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I suppose if we start with what I think the censors always hate the most, which is the sex. And it's very early on, actually. Our, one of our main characters, Coral Musker, this wonderful dancer who's traveling weirdly to Istanbul to dance, which is was remarkable to me alone when I read it. I was like, go all that way to appear in a show? And she sees a glimpse of a man and she's suddenly transported to previous Friday nights, I suppose, when she's having a clinch in a car. And I, it's called A Furtive Dangerous Embrace by Green, which is wonderful. And I thought Coral's storyline really was a lot about sex and its possibility, the desire uh, propriety, all of those sorts of things. Um, did you think that Coral was quite possibly a dangerous character for the censors? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's perhaps not so much danger as kind of the collateral stuff that goes on around her. So there's that one scene um, when she's in the shared compartment and she's asleep and the man is putting his hand up her leg. And so it's kind of, it's that sense of the sort of seediness of humans in a train you put a bunch of people in one place and you don't know their backgrounds you don't know their motives you don't know what they're going to do 
And actually, sometimes it ends up in quite disturbing situations. I had a conversation with my PhD supervisor, who I won't name, but he, I'm sure he won't mind me calling him a bit of a trained fanatic. And we were talking about this novel. And one of the things he pointed out is that we see different parts of the train in the novel as well. So it's not just connected with coral, but it's it's this kind of boundary between being in a shared compartment where there are smells and touches and people are kind of really close to each other. But you also see the private compartments where also sexual activity happens, but it's in a much perhaps a nicer way, in a sense. Yeah, poor Coral when she's trying to get some sleep and that horrible man is feeling up her legs. <laughs> you know, it's such a, a moment if you've been on public transport, you're like, oh God, yeah, I mean, who who hasn't really had those awkward moments or seen them and wondered what to do and how to intervene? And that, that man, Mayat, is standing looking, trying to work out how he gets involved. Yeah, and she's kind of almost pretending like it isn't happening. But then she says, obviously, afterwards, you know, he had his hand up my leg. And so it's that sense of you don't want to make a scene, I suppose, in that situation. But, it, you know, it still happens. And Yeah, and Carl, in the end, to avoid the horribleness of uh, Mr. Peter's wandering hands, ends up sort of making an arrangement, but a very kind of ambiguous arrangement with Carlton Myatt, doesn't she? He does, yes. And they kind of get talking and he helps her and she sleeps in his compartment and he sleeps outside. And then there's this kind of weird scene where it suddenly becomes apparent that they probably have feelings for each other and that they can, you know, have sex the following night and then they make a big plan of it. And then it's like, let's live together. We're going to live together when we get to the other side. I guess on a train, maybe when you're in those close scenarios with people, things are going to move quite quickly. It reminds me of a film um, Before Sunrise, which is about two people who meet in uh, on a train to Vienna and they fall in love and they spend the whole night in Vienna. And so it's just that sense of, I think, there's something quite erotic and quite tempting about travel and that possibility of you can go anywhere, but also you can meet anyone. Yeah, it is a a kind of a travel novel, isn't it? It's about the possibilities of travel for people who live in Europe and also people who live in Britain and who are travelling across Europe. And one of the most interesting characters in the, the novel, it's a couple, Mabel Warren and Jane Pardo. And I just thought they were great. They were so interesting. Mabel in particular, she's a journalist and Jane is her live-in companion. And they are absolutely in a lesbian relationship. What I really particularly enjoyed about them was that they are these two English women, but they are living this loose life together on the continent, sort of apart from all of the Englishness that you expect around them because Mabel's wearing a lot of tweed and Jane is obviously very genteel, but they've been sort of extracted from Englishness and stuck into the continent and they live an entirely different life. I mean, would it be a stretch to say that Green is investigating how travel, foreignness and sex can kind of work together in those contexts. Well, I, I don't think that's a stretch at all. I think that's that's a very fair point. I mean, I think we need to think about the novel in relation to what else is going on, what other novels are going on at the time, what other novels are being written. And there is a lot about kind of using Europe, Central Europe in particular, alongside motifs of sex and, and being more liberal with each other and so on. 
So you see authors like Christopher Isherwood writes a novel in 1939 called Goodbye to Berlin, which is about the decline of Thymar Germany. But it is also about kind of people meeting each other and having fun in Europe. I think another thing we need to think about is how there were so many intellectuals and journalists and academics in Europe and across sort of across Central Europe at the time. So there are lots of people in Berlin. There are people in Vienna. And it's the real fertile culture of, you know, people sharing ideas and learning from each other and writing and meeting European writers and kind of making magazines with lots of different perspectives in them. But at the same time, I think what Green is doing is he's kind of saying, you know, this world, we might romanticise it a bit. We might idealise it a bit. Because this is also a story about, in Mabel's case, a reporter's life which isn't really glamorous. And it's not, you know, there's no kind of flamboyance, no sort of thrills and danger. It's about her getting things wrong and it's about her drinking and about her about her losing her suitcase and, you know, ending up kind of struggling to keep up with the action at all. So it's, it's I think this very weird, it, it plays into the kind of sex and travel side, but it's also almost like a critique or parody of that. One of the things that really struck me about Mabel actually is how harsh Green is about journalism itself, you know, where he's saying like that she extracts words and sort of corrupts them. And it was really, he was really nasty about journalists and he practically is one himself. Yes, exactly. And I think it's, in ways, this kind of links into theme later on in the novel in the sense of the the author and fame. Oh, oh yes the the guy with the um Savary Savary <laughs> yes yeah, so um it, it kind of links into Savary and he talks about how he's not writing travel a travel book he's actually going to write a novel so it's this whole idea of the entertainment sphere and the kind of tense political ideological dangerous sphere intersecting and how authors are playing on that kind of binary between what is serious work about what's going on on the continent and what's actually just playful fun. Yes, because although there's a lot of sex, there is a huge amount of political intrigue. There's international espionage, revolutions, coups, plotting, fake passports, border control. I mean, it has everything you'd need in a thriller. And Green liked to divide his writing between, you know, entertainments and novels. Would you consider this one an entertainment? I mean, I think for me, it, it kind of blends both. So it's both playful. I mean, when Green is writing it, he physically can't track the entire journey. He can't get trains um, through Germany. So he gets a train to the border. And so you you notice in the novel that there's so much more detail about what's going on as he takes that initial part of the journey rather than the end part. So it's this sense, I think, of kind of exoticizing and fictionalizing what's going on over there in Central Eastern Europe. But yeah, he, he listened to um, a record as well while he was writing. So he, he listened to this record about a locomotive. So it's, I think, a very interesting blend of different inspirations to write about something political. Um, there's also a lot of novels published in the time which kind of fictionalise or abstract a European space, so a continental space. Um, so there are authors like Rex Warner, for example, one of Green's contemporaries, who writes a novel called The Wild Goose Chase in the late 1930s. 
And it's kind of set in Central Europe, but it's never quite specific and we don't know exactly where it is. But it, again, has these scenes of like revolution and social um, social dissatisfaction and stuff like that. So it's, I, I think what Green is doing is he's interested in how you write about a kind of a place where you can see that there are political, you know, terrible political situations going on and you can see that things are in decline. You don't know exactly where things are going. So it's like, how do you write about contemporary politics and how do you write about that without maybe offending anyone as well? Um, and he would have obviously been very well aware of, of what might happen to his work if he wrote something that was too um, clear in it, condemning a particular country or a particular place. So do you think he was kind of conscious of the political repercussions of discussing these kind of uh, oppressive regimes in European countries and then the types of revolutions that might unseat them. Yeah, I think I think he is. I mean, I think all authors had to be, in a sense, looking back at the 1930s, obviously, from the perspective that we, we're in now, we kind of see it as, you know, Britain would have stepped in and saved Eastern Europe and supported Poland and against Russia and against Germany. But at the time, there's so many uncertainties about what actually Britain is going to do. And whether or not to get involved with, you know, supporting the independence of countries against bigger political powers or whether to come out and sort of explicitly condemn what's going on. So I think it's, it's this kind of playing on the, on the line of, of, you know, you want to give an atmosphere of a place. And certainly he does that. He gives an atmosphere of how dangerous things are, but he also doesn't ever go far. And it's just occurred to me, of course, Murder on the Orient Express. When is that? Because this is the Orient Express. So, so the Orient Express, um, until this is my niche train knowledge. Until um, post World War One, there was sort of one line, I believe. And then after the war, uh, there were these questions as to whether or not it could continue to go through Germany and Austria. So they built another line that went further south, which was called the Simplon Orient. That's the one that Christie's writing about is a simple orange. So you get these scenes where it's stuck in the snow because it's going through the mountains. Green's Orient Express is the Ostend-Vienna Orient Express, which combined with the cars of the original Orient Express. So it, it kind of tracked the same journey, but it also had the bit, the Ostend bit as well. So it's like, so I think he's kind of tapping into that romanticized narrative about the Orient Express, but it's also the practicality of how you get from place to place. It's not just a sort of romantic story. Were trains a popular setting for novels then? Or were they kind of really exotic? Like, I don't know, airports might have been later. Yeah, no, they were absolutely. And and so many um, kind of thriller, adventure, spy novels from the period use trains either at the start or at the end as a kind of way of, of getting into the action. The train is where you will meet seedy people and where you come across people doing, you know, nefarious dealings with each other. So it's it's that whole idea of, I think, being quite a claustrophobic space and trying to navigate that, but also how it links you up and it, it kind of abridges that isolation that Britain might feel being an island. Of course, when you're actually in the train station, you're usually reading a book as well. So you could be reading Stamboul train while waiting for your train, which is kind of funny. 
That would be quite meta, yes? <laughs> yes, you can consider the fictional train while you actually wait for a real train. Exactly. And I, I think it's also like Green's um, novel is about kind of everyday people, I suppose, coming into contact with each other. So it's almost a sense of this could happen to you. And I was wondering about the film. Um, have you watched it? I haven't watched the films. Um, Green was writing it to be made into a film. So he has these. Oh, was he? Yeah. So he has these kind of, um, very filmic, I guess, frames, the frame of the window as you're going through and things like the, the sort of quick speed of action train, which would mimic the quick speed of action of a film. I don't really know much about the actual film, but I, I guess that's why we see so many scenes at the start where characters are looking through the window. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Yes. Yeah, it, it would make a very visual like experience. You can see that he is thinking visually as he's writing it. Absolutely. Well, shall we move on to the censorship bingo and see, because there is so much I think we can pick. I'm really hoping for a high score. Oh, I'm so excited. Right. So we start uh, with breasts. Now, there are a lot of legs because Coral's legs are much more important than her breasts. I think I think of her as a really skinny 1920s style dancer. That's why I think maybe that isn't the part of her body that's most sexualized. Mm. Yeah, I think you're right. It is more it does seem to be more about her legs and and this kind of sense of using the body and and the body in space rather than necessarily breast. So I don't know if that was one that we can pick. God, that would be a first. Did Jane, what about Jane? Do they go on about Jane's bosoms? Oh, maybe. Mm. Sort but not not really actually. No, she's much more a sort of a 
a presence rather than a figure. And then she becomes a kind of ghostly presence, doesn't she, you know, in a sense of, of not really appearing in, anymore. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. No, I actually, amazingly, we can't take breasts. It's a first. <laughs> wow. Um, and then bestiality. Well, really, I don't think so. No, no but unless you count as kind of a sort of weird mechanical bestiality with the train. <laughs> the, the kind of the constant movement. I mean, it's... yes, the shaking and the juddering. Yes, I... exactly. <laughs> yes, but sadly, I don't think so. I don't think we can stretch it that far. <laughs> and then sex work. Well, yeah, I think that's referenced quite a lot, especially through Coral, but. Even the relationship between Jane and Mabel is a little bit commercial as well. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, agreed. And then racism. Well, we really have to talk about the anti-Semitism issues that go through the text here. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that is, Green's work is reflecting the, the obviously the culture of the age, which was this kind of perception of Jewish characters as being threats and I think it also links into, and this is something that comes up in, in earlier fiction through the period as well, the, the kind of fear of displaced people, I think, and the sense of people without homelands. And maybe we see that through the other characters as well. So the characters who can just like abandon everything they own and go and get on the train and go and dance somewhere else. And that seems to be a more kind of commercial and acceptable form of, of travel. But this is something more... It's perceived as more nefarious. I thought the character of Carlton Wyatt, the Jewish man, like I wasn't expecting quite as much empathy for his situation of being an outsider because Green talks a lot about how he's navigating the space, trying to avoid all of these aggressions, you know, that would be directed at him as a Jewish man. Yes, absolutely. But then I guess the other side to that is that he's acknowledging that there would be aggressions and it almost on him to be cautious rather than expecting that society would be accepting. Yes. Yeah, that's fair. Yeah, we can definitely take racism then. <laughs> drugs. Was anyone taking anything? I don't think so. No, unless alcohol and drugs. Hmm. There weren't even drinking that much by the standards of a lot of novels. And what they drank, they didn't seem to like it. So, <laughs> Yes. Well, Mabel does get steaming drunk, but she's the only one. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, no, I don't think we can take that. Uh, politics, well, absolutely. I mean, Mr. Opie going to, I sort of in my head think it's Hungary, going to Hungary to ferment revolution. Yeah, absolutely. And people picking up passports from kind of dodgy poles in London. Yeah, yeah. So it, yes, there's this very much this sense of politics and a kind of European politics that's sort of threatening. And there's a lot about socialism and communism. Yeah. Which I think the censors would absolutely despise because they hate anything left wing. That's really a big problem. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, so we take that one. Swearing. I mean, I didn't notice anybody using any coarse language. No, I mean, even when Mabel loses her bag and it's this, you know, really kind of tense scene, she doesn't swear. Yeah, I don't think that there's much swearing per se. Yeah, and even Mr. Sav Savory, whatever. Savory, the author, although he's supposed to have this colourful language, he doesn't use even like bugger. He doesn't even say anything mild. Yeah. Fortunately, we can't take this. This is terrible. Come on. Come on, Graham. <laughs> and the next one, 
infidelity. I mean, surely people are cheating on their partners who are who they're married to, though. Yeah. Most people aren't married. Well, Mr. Peters is feeding up Carl. Yes, that's true. That's true. I mean, I wonder if that would. Yeah. Yeah. That would count. Surely. Surely counts. Yeah. Thank God. Right. Take that one. And crime. Well, yes, there's a lot of seedy underworld type stuff going on, isn't there? There is. Yes. And people, you know, like, like I mentioned earlier, the kind of the passports thing of people being able to get fake documentation, people running away from crimes they've committed, going to live in South of England and then and then returning. And Yes. Yes. And the uh, the safe breaker who ends up murdering somebody and is on the run. And that's a very strange scene, isn't it? Because we have the sort of the train tracking from departure all the way through and then suddenly we're somewhere else that isn't on a train. It's amazing how, it's quite a short book, how many people and how much backstory for every character he managed to cram in. Yeah, absolutely. Which it seems like a digression, but of course it isn't then. It builds into the story. The The safe breaker feels like, why are we doing this? But um, yeah, it would also make a great part of a film, that whole section about climbing the roof. Yes, definitely. And I think it's almost like seeing the train as a kind of, the train is everyone's fate. You know, it's kind of a black hole that sucks people in. It's like the boat going across the river sticks. Everyone gets on it eventually. It's always there. <laughs> right, definitely tick crime. Um, genitalia, no, surely not. It's very mild. It is, even when um, Coral is having sex in the private compartment. There's a sense of pain with that scene, but there's no kind of explicit mention of, you know, steamy goings on. Um, no. No, I mean, I think it's quite interesting thinking about the train as not only a symbol of travel, but also as a kind of a place for a very particular kind of sexual experience. And it makes me think of much earlier works like Venus in Furs by Saka Masoch, which was a, a novel published in the 1800s, in which, again, this this sexual encounter of, of a kind of dominating woman and a submissive man, and how part of that takes place on a train. So that that place where they can act out this fantasy. Fascinating. Sadly, we can't take genitalia, though. No. <laughs> and then abortion. I don't think there was anything as a, like in-depth as that. No, I don't think so. No. There doesn't even seem no. to be any reference towards that at all, does there? No. Orgies, definitely not, really. I mean, in spite of the communal nature of the train. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's just, yeah, it's one big orgy. I mean, you know... <laughs> And sexual assault. Well, surely Mr. Peter's feeling her up counts as sexual assault. Yes, I would say so. And also perhaps even the pressure on Coral to kind of go with Myat into that private compartment. It seems like they're consenting, but I think there is also this, she fears that that's what she should do. She has a lot of ambivalence about how she is expected to behave, how she wants to behave. And then the reality of being a poor girl with no money on a cold, miserable train and wanting something better than, you know, a shared compartment. There's a lot going on in that that relationship. And then extramarital pregnancy. Well, no, she doesn't even think about it. No. It seems to be more about the fun and the desire. There doesn't seem to be any kind of mention of children or pregnancy or anything like that. 
it's quite strange because she's so worried about behaving herself and preserving some sort of moral standard. And yet the most obvious thing you would be afraid of is extramarital pregnancy. Especially for Dancer, yeah. Yeah, exactly. So we can't take that one either, sadly. Um, masturbation. No, surely not. I mean, I, I suppose we could take the whole hands creeping up the leg thing, which scene that we keep coming back to is maybe something along those lines, I suppose. So the pleasure there is only his, in a sense. And then, but then I wonder whether that would more go for the next category, the idea of sex toys. Is he just a sex toy to him? Yeah, I don't think we can really stretch it as far as masturbation. Sadly, sex toys. I mean, that's not a bad argument, actually. <laughs> she is an actual person, so I don't think we can. Yeah, I don't think there's any, you know, there's no kind of old dildos. No, they have very small amounts of luggage, I suppose. They just can't fit them in. Yeah, exactly. It's probably just been lost at the station. <laughs> or maybe the customs would confiscate them because they are searched a lot at various custom points. Yes. And maybe that's a, another form of assault in a way. On the body. I suppose now that there is so little searching of our goods in general when we travel to see how often you could be stopped, like every couple of hours, really. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I guess the whole sense of that's so invasive in comparison to modern technology of x-raying where, you know, your, your luggage can still be kind of zipped up and polite and no one can see in, whereas this is people really rifling through. Yeah, like rummaging through your clothes and the judgments that they would sort of pass. And like for Mayish, it's quite stressful. As a Jewish man, he gets a lot of grief at the customs. You're just like, oh, awful. Um, so yeah, the next one, feminism. This is interesting. What do you think about Coral and Jane and Mabel as sort of versions of emancipated women? Yeah, I mean, we could argue that Coral is in that she... You know, she's travelling on her own. Yes, it brings her into quite awkward situations with people, but she has still taken that job and is still doing it as a, you know, as a sort of adventurous woman in a sense. And the same with Mabel. But then I think that's kind of undercut by Mabel's behaviour and kind of Green's presentation of her as being someone who's not actually that that nice, who isn't that glamorous. Yes, because all of the women are, I mean, Coral ends up needing a man to save her. Jane ends up needing a man to save her and sort of make her respectable. Mabel doesn't, actually, but Mabel vanishes for a large part of the novel. And she's just completely inept anyway. <laughs> Maybe the implication there, she needs a man. <laughs> Yeah, I don't know how she managed to reappear suddenly either. It's kind of strange. She just gets parachuted back in. But yeah, I think that the female characters are given a lot of agency, but they end up achieving success through sort of dependent uh, economic relationships. I'd go with that. Yeah. Yeah. Not sure if it's very feminist. On the other hand, the idea that there would be any lesbians at all is obviously terrible for the censors. And that a young unmarried woman would go travelling to Istanbul to dance is probably enough to give them a coronary. That would count as feminist. Yeah, I mean, that's true. So it's almost like feminism and anti-feminism at the same time. Yeah, I think, I think from the point of view of this, we could tick it, but with a large qualifier. Yeah. Yeah. I think we should go for it. Yes. <laughs> yeah, large qualifier that it's, yeah, yeah feminism-ish. Um, and then divorce. 
Well, you see, nobody's married. No, I mean, I suppose Mabel and Jane, they're not married, but in a way they kind of undergo a sort of divorce. Yes, because they are in a long-standing relationship. Yes, and it's, you know, would they have been able to get married? Probably not. So it's this sense of, in a way, maybe that is a kind of a divorce or at least a relationship breakup. But then, I mean, it's it's not explicit, is it? No. And I mean, Jane seems to be looking for an opportunity to leave Mabel and is taking the train as a way of escaping from this relationship, I think. Which, of course, is very interesting, the use of the train to break out of your normal domestic space. Yeah, so maybe not divorce. Possibly not, because they actually aren't married. God damn it. Next, contraception. Well, is the reason that Coral isn't worried about extramarital pregnancy because she knows that there's some way of preventing it? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. Or is it just that she's kind of ignorant? She's so naive about so much. Yes, I mean, even though you would think that she would be very worldly wise for her job, she is not. She doesn't know how to behave and, and doesn't and has no experience at all, which would make me wonder whether or not she would be aware of contraception. And I think at one point she mentions some uh, a novelist that she reads called Ruby M. Ayres, who's a huge romance novelist of the period. Very vanilla, mainstream, not controversial. <laughs> so I suppose really she wouldn't have learnt anything from that either. No, so I, I would say probably not for contraception. Not for contraception either. God damn it. Yeah, not going well. <laughs> no, it's not. It's very annoying. Menstruation. No. Luckily, actually, for the characters, because <laughs> I don't know how you'd manage. The bathing facilities sounded pretty primitive. They did. Yeah, and that is quite a long journey to, yeah. Blasphemy. Well, yeah, definitely, because Mr. Opie, main political character, has this break with his faith and then he's sort of seesawing back and forth. So I think there's quite a lot about faith and God. Yes, absolutely. And I guess this links into the real decline of religious faith at the time. I mean, there does seem to be a kind of blasphemous sense and also a just generally anti-institution. This idea of, you know, faking your passports and rifling through people's belongings. There's very much, it was almost quite a lawless place, the train. Yeah, and Mr. Opie, I think, has a lot of anti-clerical thoughts as well as he surveys his past life. But yeah, I think we could tick blasphemy, definitely. Oral sex, no, no, no. Sadly not. <laughs> Sadly not. Graphic violence. Well, yes, there is the murders. I think that would definitely count. There, There's the murder by the safe breaker and then there's the killing at the end, the sort of execution that went a bit wrong. Yeah, absolutely. And in both cases, it's putting you very close to what's going on. It's not just a kind of gunshot that we don't see. It's the kind of the after effects and the waiting for someone to die. So yeah, I would say graphic violence for sure. For sure, yes. So we can tick that. And finally, the LGBTQ plus content, definitely with Mabel and Jane. And in the end, you know, there is another relationship, but I'm not going to give it away because people should actually read it. Definitely. I mean, it's it's incredible. And like you're saying, it's a very short novel, but it packs so much in. It does. So many people. Right. Let's count up what we got. One, two. I make it nine out of 25. I'm thinking nine. Yeah. That's... Yeah. 
That's not too bad, actually. It's quite respectable. Doing well. Graham's doing well. <laughs> and especially for the 1930s, I found a lot of the books tended to be more about a four or a five. So to include so much, I think he's he's done well. Yeah, absolutely. And so it's a much varied content as well. I think people should read it. Do you? Yes, I'd, absolutely. And I think it gives you a real glimpse into what's going on. Not only kind of British responses to what's going on in Europe and further afield, but the kind of the politics of that region and how, you know, as as you were mentioning, this sense of, you know, revolutions and passports and people shifting identity and that real sense of danger and also how you are put in a very claustrophobic relationship with that danger. So it's it's a very, very good read. Yeah, I think the censors would have found all of that movement of people and the breaking out of the national boundaries. I think they would have found that quite disturbing because they are promoting a very insular, closed sense of Irish nationhood and the idea that you would get in a train and meet people from all over the world and discuss religion and politics, have sex with them, steal their stuff. Like there's no family or country sense. It is very contractual sometimes as well. It really is. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. No, I think people should read it. I enjoyed it greatly. It was really quick to read. And yeah, I know that Green thought, you know, entertainments might have been lesser than novels, but I think that's a false binary. You know, writing something that's entertaining still that many years later, that's an achievement. It is, absolutely. And and resonates with what's going on politically, ideologically as well. It almost does more than you know, reading a history book might because it gives you the real sense of being in a place. Well, thank you so much, Juliet. That was a great talk. Well, thank you so much for having me. This has been, it's been great to talk about this and play censorship bingo. Censorship bingo is the best, really. It's amazing. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> for the next one, I actually haven't decided what I'll talk about next time. I'm living dangerously. So till then, keep your hands clean and your minds filthy. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.